This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, the Omega Geek shows us how to keep aliens hidden from our parents. Hello everyone, I am Gepwin. Welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow. I am joined, as always, by my good friend Dr. Izix. Hi! And this week we have a special guest star because we ended a season, so we figured we'd do something a little different. We are being joined this week by the Omega Geek. Hello. Omega Geek does internet videos explaining psychology using pop culture. It's a very nice reference point for all of us. It's fun. And this week we let Omega Geek pick her favorite sci-fi movie for us to cover this week, or at least an interesting one, and she picked something that I would not have expected, which was E.T. the Extraterrestrial. I gotta say, it's one of the first sci-fi films I saw when I was little. I think we had it on VHS, maybe when I was like four or five. I was like, oh, I haven't seen that in at least 25 years. Yeah, I had a similar, like, I, I remember this movie existing, and I remember bits and pieces, but I had not actually seen it since I was a kid. Got everybody uh, back watching. Yeah, you know, it's been a while since I've seen it myself. Uh, bits and pieces, you know, occasionally catching on you know, TV or cable, something like that. And it's like, oh yeah, I'll watch this for a few minutes before I have to like go do something. But you know, not the full thing until well, <laughs> you know, just the other day. So TT was uh, released in 1982, which makes it the most recent thing I think that we've watched in a while since we've been doing all the old 60s Star Treks. Yeah, the the only thing we've done uh, newer, I think, is uh, Snowpiercers. So every movie we've done has been newer, I think. Okay, yeah, Man of Earth is uh, early two thousand. So sorry. <laughs> we know the weird thing is though that um, I have this on DVD because Hagen got me a copy a while back. Mm-hmm. I don't think that the original cut exists anymore on digital media because this is the twentieth anniversary edition where there's a lot more CGI and they took out the federal agents' weapons and gave them you know walkie talkies and all that stuff. So. I'm not sure if the original one even existed really anymore. Well, uh, surprise, surprise. I think I actually saw the original version. Uh, that's the yes. version that I was able to get on uh, Amazon Prime, uh, did a, a rental situation with that. Oh, okay. Uh, and I was like, oh, yeah, they are. They do have the guns. They do have the shotgun, specifically. Uh, and they also, uh, the one line that they uh, changed in the uh, you know, special edition there, uh, where, you know, uh, I'm not going to let you go out looking like a terrorist became, you know, I'm not going to let you go out there looking like a hippie. Uh, but I had the, the terrorist version instead. That's a, and that's such a weird thing to edit. I mean, I understand why, but like. So the one thing that I really wondered, and I was very disappointed we didn't get to see the costume. What is a stereotypical '80s terrorist? He added the. Uh, you, you see him. He's got. He's just dressed normally, and he has like you know he's drawn a really thick beard on. But mm-hmm. then he just adds the uh, the hat and the the dagger, the fake the joke dagger through the head thing. So I think he like looks like a hobo. But so I guess. They were maybe intending vaguely Middle Eastern in some way. Which wouldn't surprise me. I just, I have absolutely no reference point for mid 80s since I was born in the mid 80s and do not remember it. Yeah. Well, there was the whole, uh, you know, stuff with Iran and, you know, the Ayatollah and all that, you know, jazz going on. And that was still very fresh in people's minds. But yeah, it's still pretty vague on my end, too. Like, it's, it's one of those things where I think they were erring on the side of caution. Like, you know, taking out the guns and stuff like that. Because one of the most enduring lines from E.T. is shut your mouth, penis breath. Yep. Which is the line that I thought, you know, oh, okay, it's a digitally remastered. They probably got rid of that. But no, they kept it in. 
Now, I was reading a little bit about that because I, I was trying to figure out and just make sure that I got the original cut, which was the Amazon one, because uh, I knew that they edited out the guns, but I've never seen the the reboot cut. Mm-hmm. A lot of the reading that I did suggested that uh, Spielberg just felt bad that he put so many weapons in the movie since it was supposed to represent kind of childhood and innocence and things. And guns are definitely threatening. And it doesn't really make a ton of sense that they're they're threatening, you know, four teenagers with shotguns. I think that the, the biggest difference is in the scene where they're they've abandoned the uh, the van at the playground. And I could have sworn that there was a line that the mother yells, which I guess either got removed or maybe I misremembered, you know, where they converge on the van and just stop it. Don't they're just children. And I guess that would make sense if they were all armed. Mm-hmm. And so maybe that's why the line doesn't exist anymore. No, that was definitely in, that was in the cut that Isix and I saw, where she they're running up. She says, "No guns, they're just children." They just, I guess they just axed the line altogether. Which would make sense if they're carrying walkie-talkies. No walkie-talkies. They're just children. <laughs> we we can't communicate to them with walkie-talkies, so because uh, they're children. They okay. only speak emoji. Leave them alone. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think everyone kind of knows the basics of ET, but let's go through some stuff just in case for everybody who's fourteen. Story uh, was kind of dictated by Steven Spielberg, written by Melissa Marston, who also wrote uh, Black Stallion, the Twilight Zone movie, and the screen adaptation of Indian in the Cupboard, which who remembers that oh, thing? I remember <laughs> the book. I read, the whole, I read that whole series. Yeah, so did I. The movie was not good. Uh, Her last screen credit, which was released just after her death, was the most recent BFG movie in 2016. I remember hearing that was going to come out, but I never remember hearing anything about that afterwards, so I'm guessing it didn't do well. I remember vaguely some, this was a good movie, but no one said anything beyond that as far as I remember. Fair enough. So a good movie, but sort of like, well, kind of nothing special, so not a whole lot of buzz. Our stars for this movie, we have a small family group. We are starring the main child is Henry Thomas as Elliot, who's just the only word anyone ever remembers from this movie. Elliot. Robert McKnighton as older brother Michael. Uh, Drew Barrymore in one of her earlier screen appearances as the younger sister Gertie. Mm -hmm. And Dee Wallace as their mother, credited as Mary. There's also uh, Keys, of course, but... He's kind of a minor role overall. Yeah, he's kind of a minor character. I figured I'd just focus on the main family. There is a character who is only named Keys because the only distinguishing thing that the movie ever tells us about him is that he owns Keys. Mm-hmm. You know, his character arc, I was actually, I was saying to to my wife before uh, we uh, started recording, was that I completely missed him having depth as a character until I rewatched it, you know, as an adult. Same. <laughs> and I was actually thinking, you know what, I would totally watch a sequel where, you know, he's now an old man and his grandson or granddaughter, you know, end up interfacing with with uh, with aliens. And that reminds him of his time. I was like, oh, I, I'd watch that. At least it's like, you know, a Netflix series or something. That would be pretty sweet, actually. I remembered the government people in the movie, but I did not remember what they actually did. Vaguely menacing. Yeah, you get the vaguely menacing and then there's that kind of turnaround at the end, which is really interesting, which I guess we'll get to in a second here with the synopsis. But All right, we've been talking pre-show for like 10 minutes, so I suppose we should just jump into synopsizing here. 
The movie opens on a shot of stars that slowly pans down to a dimly lit forest with an egg-shaped craft in a small clearing, surrounded by small, very awkwardly moving shapes. The inside of the ship is filled with strange alien plants and mushrooms, and we see a lot of the creatures outside are taking plants from the local area. At one point they are surprised by an owl, and the entire group freezes and starts to glow red in the chest, and make an odd noise. What is that? It's spoken me. Yeah, which I this this is just a random aside because I just love this. But owls are all aliens and all cryptids. <laughs> Correct. So I just thought it was hilarious that the aliens got scared by an owl. <laughs> Let's get out of here, Jesus! But like any any time someone is describing an alien or a cryptid, it is like ninety percent of the time a barn owl or a juvenile barn owl. What do barn owls get up to, though, that they're, like, being spotted, causing that much chaos? You have to ask yourself. You do. People say that owls are one of the dumber birds, which is a little bit mean, but maybe they just are secretly plotting against us. Yeah, they're using all their brain power. I don't trust birds. They're not like mammals. We do, like, good, bright, and true things. Birds get up to weird stuff. Birds do get up to mischief. Birds are also dinosaurs, so, you know, they're up to no See? good for that. Yeah, the birds faked their own death. <laughs> Went into hiding. Uh, it was a meteor, really. We're all gone now. Wink. One of the creatures wanders from the ship to an overlook where we see the lights of a small suburb played out into grid that will be recognizable to anyone who grew up in the western United States. But it's not recognizable when the sun comes up because the road's a little bit more twisty that way. It's not the same town at all. I mean, this is a map painting, so. Yeah. Just then, several trucks arrive and men who we don't see the faces of. We get a lot of awkward kind of crotch level shots. An interesting choice for me. I understand the reasoning behind it later on, but you're just getting a lot of leg and, and you know, below the waist camera angles. You can only see so high. The only thing we see is that one of them is carrying keys on their belt. They scare the lone creature, who hides, until they are apparently called back to the ship by the others, at which point their heart starts to glow red and they make a weird sound, which does not seem like the best adaptation for survival. I guess if if it's some kind of larger predator, it might be scared off by the noise. Well, they can, you know, leg it. Well, it could be. See, the... This, this gets me back to the bird stuff again. You got me thinking about it. There's a thing that a lot of animals use called a contact call, which when birds make a just kind of chirping noise, uh, it's mostly just kind of a call and response thing. Like, I can't see you, but I'm still here. And then another one responds and goes, yes, I am still alive and have not been eaten. Oh, okay. So I suppose it could be something along those lines of, you know, I'm going to glowy heart and you're going to glowy heart. And then we'll figure out if we're still alive and, you know, existing. I guess people in E.T.'s race probably, you know, never are back late from intermission because, you know, when the th- they all start glowing at the same time and then turn back, I thought, wow, that'd be really great. So to be in the lights to let everyone know the intermission's almost over, you just start, oh, the chest is glowing. All right, honey, you better take our seats. Just <laughs> finish your finish your junior men's. Let's go. Keep one person in the theater. The creature runs back toward the ship but cannot reach it in time, and we see a shot of his heart fading as the ship flies off into space. He's lost the power of love. Oh no! Basically, yes. (laughs) The men from the trucks continue searching for the creature as we see it move off towards the lit town. 
We cut to a group of boys playing D&D at a kitchen table, and they are all making fun of each other and yelling over each other, so we can't exactly hear what they're saying very well. The youngest boy, Elliot, really wants to play. They finally agree that he can, showing at least some bit of friendship or connection or something, but they decide that he has to go outside in the cold to pay the pizza guy if he wants to play the game. I've been there. I've been in that position. Maybe not at the D&D game, but, you know, older siblings like, yeah, you can play with us, but you have to do all this other stuff first. You have to pay for the pizza. This may be a point where I started separating from the, the characters in the movie because I was an only child and I did not grow up in this time period. So to me, everything that was happening here just seemed unpleasant and annoying. See, I didn't even I remembered them playing a board game and I didn't realize until, you know, again, just watching it today. Oh my god, they're playing D&D, and they're not even playing AD&D. They're probably playing the original board game version from the late 70s. Mm-hmm. And I was and like, wow. Pretty, and they have a pretty I'm sweet setup there with whole whole dungeons and things like that, like, you know, little, little model walls. It's like, like I'm kind of jealous. <laughs> yeah, most of this movie seems to just be Spielberg proving how much of a nerd he is. <laughs> As if there was any doubt. <laughs> not after this movie after paying for the pizza elliot is distracted by a noise before he can get back inside and he sees a light coming out of an old tool shed uh this is probably the most iconic shot from the film where he throws a ball into the lit shed the ball comes back and for some reason at that point he is scared by whatever it is he's looking at sort of this uh bright light in the shed so it's sort of you know the, the audience might be you know like well why can't you see it but i guess in sort of in universe he's maybe not seeing what's in there quite very well so yeah it's very unclear whether he can see what's in the shed at this point we're always on a side view so we have no interior view of the shed at all i've noticed that that was that was a reoccurring theme in a lot of the ways that this was shot that your point of view is very fixed on purpose like Mm -hmm. how all the government officials are always shown through most of the film in silhouette or in profile and then your first images of E.T. are very much a uh, controlled point of view. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, the entire time I was watching this, like I was just like, this is a gorgeously shot movie. Like Everything is very deliberate. Every scene is composed in this very deliberate fixed point of view structure that just hides enough, but also makes it very pretty and kind of painting-like. Like The cinematography on this is amazing. Kind of dreams a, brings a dream aspect to it all, too, which is kind of cool. Yeah, and then all of the... I'm, I'm not going to mention this much in the thing with camera angles, but all of the camera angles that we see are either, like, far-off fixed points that give us some, like, silhouettes and, and sweeping panoramas and things, or close-in, low-camera angles that are sort of a kid's eye-level point of view of what's going on. Well, one thing that really got me was, again, I was watching the 20th anniversary version, and it's been digitally remastered. And it kind of threw me off for the first 10 or so minutes because I'm not used to, I associate a specific film quality with the 80s. And I was kind of like, oh, well, this is not what I expected. That's yes. an interesting <laughs> point. You do lose a lot of the kind of period specific, like film grain color aspects and whatnot when you digitally remaster things. Oh, after Elliot is scared by whatever is throwing the ball back to him. He runs inside, is immediately just made fun of by all the older boys for being scared, I guess. They all grab knives, run outside to check on what he saw in the shed. They find a bunch of very oddly shaped three-toed footprints that his brother Michael somehow identifies as a coyote. 
which prompts them all to go back inside. Yes. Uh, by the way, a mom's here too at this point. So. Yes, mom is here too. She does not like that they ordered a pizza. I wondered about that too. That too. I'm like, well, did, did you give them dinner? I mean, like, obviously, you know. Yeah. Also, wasn't she like three feet away when they were talking about this? Maybe she wasn't paying attention. <laughs> I think she might have just gotten out of the shower. But I'd have to rewatch to be sure. Later on in the night, Elliot hears more noises outside and goes out to what appears to be their backyard cornfield. He follows more tracks when he finally signs the creature, and they both scream and run away. Yes, and there's a dropping of lights, there's flailing, and uh, like, oh god, there's some something out here, says both of them at the same time. <laughs> the next day, Elliot rides his bike to some random part of the woods... I have, I have no idea why he's chosen this specific place. It, the movie makes it very unclear. He begins to drop Reese's pieces until we see the man with the keys looking around, and then he rides away still dropping candy. We get a shot of the creature's hands gripping a tree, so we now know that somehow Elliot did find the right place to start looking for this thing. Hmm. It's almost like he has some sort of sense. This was just one of the random Amazon facts that the movie gave me. But apparently one of the great unspoken crimes of E.T. is that this began movie product placement. Yep. Well, sort here's the not. thing, though. They were never explicitly named. I mean, obviously you could look at the colors and say, oh, those are Reese's Pieces by the colors. But that might be why I associate the early 80s so strongly with Reese's Pieces. And even just watching them, just watching the film now, I really, really wanted some. You cannot get them in Derry. You probably can't get oh. them on the island of Ireland. But, oh, mm. I wanted some. Weirdly enough, they've almost stopped selling them in New York as well. It's it's very difficult to find the things. Oh, am I going to get you guys uh, care packages here? Come on. Well, there's a there's a shop in Belfast that does American candy. So next time I'm down there, maybe I can see if I can get some. <laughs> so the, the interesting thing that it had in here was that apparently they reached out to M&M's and asked if they could use M&M's in the movie. And M&M said no because... They thought E.T. was going to be too scary. Whoops. <laughs> but they wish they hadn't now. Yeah, they, they used the Reese's Pieces. They never named them, but you can see the name on the bag at one point and then the colors. Uh, and the Reese's Pieces sales skyrocketed after the release of the movie. And that's when brands were like, oh, we can cash in on that. <laughs> I see. Yes. <laughs> we'll pay you to put our stuff in your movie and supposed to the reverse where you pay us. <laughs> Later that night, Elliot is having dinner with his family, which includes his brother who we met earlier, his mother who was outside earlier, and the now meet sister Gertie who is quite young. I think the I don't know how old Gertie is supposed to be. I think uh, Drew Barrymore was around uh, eight or nine in this movie. She, she sounds like, like she might, might be supposed to be like five or six. That's what I was guessing. Yeah, that's kind of the impression I got. And it wasn't until I looked up when she was actually born later that I found out how old she was in the movie. They all tell Elliot in sort of mean, dismissive ways that they basically think he imagined everything he's been telling them. Everything you know is wrong, kid. Sorry. We also find out through an offhanded remark through Elliot that their father is no longer living with them and is apparently spending time with some other woman in Mexico. This upsets their mother and makes his brother angry that Elliot brought this up at dinner. Later that night, we cut to Elliot outside 
apparently waiting for the creature to come back, which does. Uh, this is the creature that we know as E.T. I'm getting tired of calling it the creature, so I'm just going to switch to E.T. even though it's not named so much later in the movie. Yeah, it's like halfway through before they say call him E.T., so. Yeah, also, they they do gender E.T. in the movie, but... Uh, there's no way to gender E.T., and it's been specifically mentioned by Spielberg that E.T. does not have a gender. So while I might some I might slip up and say he because that's what they call it in the movie, but I'm you know don't know exactly what pronouns to assign E.T. Honestly, that's fair enough. Oh, E.T. slowly approaches Elliot and drops the candy that Elliot had laid out earlier. So you know I found the candy. Here's your candy pack. <laughs> this is yours, right? <laughs> Elliot then leads E.T. through the house by dropping a trail of candy that leads E.T. to his room. They mirror each other for a little while with hand gestures and face touching until E.T. starts to purr and I guess puts Elliot to sleep. It's a little bit unclear at this point. I think that kind of was like the beginning of their, their psychic bond or whatever kind of bond that they have going on is when you watch him. Basically, in psychology, we call that social modeling. Like, you know, when a little baby infant watches someone and they'll start to try to do the same kinds of things you see the adult doing. And when he touches his face and you see E.T. social model off him, I kind of felt like that was the part where their bond was, that was, that was the advent of their bond. Yeah, the, the social stuff, I liked that they did some of the social modeling in here, and I don't know... I, 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 we'll get more into this a little bit later after the synopsis, but there's some stuff about E.T.'s behavior in this movie that was weird and inconsistent for me, and it, I spent the entire movie trying to figure it out, which I know was not the point, but it still bugged me. <laughs> in the woods, the man with the keys finds some of the candy that Elliot has been leaving around and then eats it off the dirty forest floor. I, th- I was thinking about that. <laughs> like, like you hear the crunch. I'm like, did you just... Oh, my God. Yeah, this is this candy has been laying out here for at least the entire night, and you just ate and it. And it's wet and gross, and there's ants. Oh, my God. I didn't quite put this together. I don't think this is where the movie's supposed to be set, but they filmed a lot of the outdoor uh, forest scenes in the Redwood National Forest in Northern California, mm-hmm. uh, where there are banana slugs. Oh, my God. No, so slugs are on that. Like some slugs in your candy? So it's wet. It's probably filled with ants and possibly slug. The next day, Elliot pretends to be sick to get out of going to school. Uh, he does this the like very stereotypical movie thing of like putting the, the thermometer up to a light bulb, which now with LED lights, no one can ever do again. That's true. Yeah, I'm just thinking about that. Like how you, how you really can't fudge it these days because it's digital. And I guess you could like put it like in something hot, like hot tea or something like that. But and that would require some more prep. Also, most thermometers now are using those like instant instant things like the ear readers and whatnot. Once alone, Elliot tries to get E.T. to talk by sort of incoherently explaining everything in his room, including a lot of Star Wars action figures. It's Boba Fett. There's a lot of Star Wars in this movie. Yes. Like, a, a lot of Star Wars. Wasn't it because he and Lucas were friends? Yeah, I, I looked this up, and this was a little bit after they collaborated on uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Because I know that in the prequel trilogy, you see E.T.'s race, and that was <laughs> added by, um, by George Lucas, who thought it would be appropriate. Yeah, which, just knowing that, knowing that E.T.'s are canonically a member of one of the Star Wars races in the prequel movies, 
just added a whole new layer to E.T. recognizing Star Wars things. Oh, like, oh when he sees Yoda on Halloween. Yeah. Exactly. It's like, hey, Yoda, what's up? It's a long time no see. Oh, why are we not stopping to say catch up? Oh. Hmm. It's just weird. And it's this, like, maybe they kind of planned that. Like, they're both working with aliens. So maybe they were like, hey, what if all our aliens were some from the same universe? That'd be funny. <laughs> we get a weirdly pointless aside where Elliot goes for food and E.T. makes a noise with an umbrella and he's startled and he drops milk. And it's really focused on but has no bearing on anything, as far as I can tell. Well, I, I think this is sort of a the first instance where... It's clear that Elliot and E.T. are kind of having this connection where E.T. is having an emotional response to the umbrella there, while Elliot, who's not even in the same room, is reacting to it as well. Oh, that's a good point. My my reading of it was just that he heard the noise from the other room. Hmm. But that's probably a more, more what was intended. That's a good good point with that scene. When his brother Michael gets home, Elliot decides to show off his new alien pet. This actually goes really well until his sister also runs into the room, sees E.T., and just starts screaming, which is exactly the same time that their mother gets home. Panic and now my ears hurt. They spend a little bit just hiding E.T. in a closet until their mother leaves to go take a shower. Elliot introduces E.T. They have some child banter where he imitates dracula or something and then both of the brothers threaten that they'll destroy her toys if the sister doesn't keep quiet about what's going on i assume this is a normal sibling relationship Uh, Uh, sometimes yeah i mean i i've got a younger sister and so we definitely did do a lot of threatening of each other we see the truck men from before kind of closing in on the town where the family lives giving us a more kind of ominous background government things happening that night the kids bring a lot of random stuff into elliot's room to show et including some dead flowers that we get some camera zooms in to know that they'll be important later we try to use maps and a globe to show et that we're on earth when Mm -hmm. elliot asks et where he's from he starts pointing out the window well yeah even with if you're looking at this is the earth here i'm still way over there guys elliot decides that the best thing to do would be to show et a diagram of our solar system et puts a bunch of balls on the diagram and makes them fly revealing that apparently he is also telekinetic he is one with the force that was one of the coolest parts when i was little when he make he basically he creates a model of his solar system with the mm-hmm. little clay balls i was like oh my god look at that oh uh I think uh, this point was uh, one of the sections that reminded me of another uh, 80s movie that involved things floating around a children's room, Poltergeist. Well, you know, these were, I read somewhere, and I'm going to have to Google it to, to make sure, but I remember reading that the idea for Poltergeist came from E.T. It was supposed to be like, it was supposed to be a horror thing called like Night Skies or Night Terrors or something. And then what Spielberg ended up doing is kind of separating them out into E.T. being very child-friendly and Poltergeist being a horror movie. Yes. So I, I believe that was on purpose. Let me Google. Yeah, I mean, inversions of the concepts of childhood, you know, joys, wonder versus fears and uncertainty. Hagen is motioning from the couch that I'm right. I'll, I'll take her word for it. After E.T. makes things float around the room for a bit, there's some sort of beeping outside that seems to just scare everyone, including E.T., as uh, he drops a bunch of things. We never get to see what it is, but Elliot goes outside to look and can't find anything. Inside, we get this very good 
characterization shot of E.T. reading a very beginning kid's spelling book. Uh, he gets kind of annoyed that the flowers they gave him are dead, and he magically makes them grow back to perfect health and goes back to reading. Arise. Elliot goes to school the next day, because I guess he can't pretend to be sick forever. On his way, his brother's friends make fun of him for seeing things. He tells them that he actually found a spaceman, and one of them yells about extraterrestrials, which I guess is where he gets the E.T. idea from. There's also a joke about Uranus. You know, your anus. Get it, get it, get it. He doesn't get it. No, did you get it? No, he doesn't get it. Made me dislike all of these children. In general. Yeah. Well, that was the, the, the 80s movie Child Ascetic. You yeah. You know, the, the wise-ass kid. And they were always boys. The little, little wise-ass boys. Yeah, they were always boys because it was the 80s and girls don't exist or... I don't know what's going on with the girls in this movie. The vagina would not be discovered until 1993. (laughs) (laughs) All of the kids in this movie are kind of weird jerks. But yeah, 80s. At the house, we get the other kind of well-known scene of the movie where Elliot's mother almost discovers E.T. in the closet, but it's just his head poking out from all of the stuffed animals. So how do you hide the tree? You hide it in the forest. How do you hide the alien head? Iconic images. Well, not one of them. Okay. There's a lot of iconic images in this movie. That's one of the ones I remember the most because I had, um, I had several ET properties and one of them was a tape. It was, it was a cassette tape of Drew Barrymore summarizing the, the story of ET, but it came with a huge full color book. And that was the picture that was, that was the cover was Wait. ET hidden among the, uh, the plushies. That's cool. I just was thinking, like, it's a really good thing that E.T. looks like he's made of plastic. Just blends in. And that's not even the weirdest E.T. property that I had. I also had the record and cassette tape of Michael Jackson synopsizing the story of E.T. What? Where did oh, all of no, this? No, this is a these? real product. <laughs> People who are listening, Google it. This is a thing that exists. And But the thing is that, I mean, I'm sure Drew Barrymore, because she was around, she was only a few years old at that point in time. You know, I'm sure they gave had she had a script that she read because she sounded like she was reading from a script. Because she's like, let me tell you about the time there was an alien. But Michael Jackson just goes all over the place with it, and like it's kind of it gets kind of weird at the end because he's like, he'll come back someday. He will. Look there he is. Look up in the sky. Look for him. And like has this kind of hysterical almost breakdown at the end. Uh, Michael, calm down. It's just a movie. Like, let me hold. On, let me. You keep talking. I'm going to bring up YouTube and see if this is <laughs> Why is Why are random celebrities badly synopsizing movies not one of the million reality shows that we get now with random celebrities? It's on YouTube in its entirety, all 32 minutes and four seconds. So I think um, we have something to, uh, to, to look at after the sh- we record here. Just Google here. Michael Jackson E.T. Isix, <laughs> when this episode comes out, we need to remember to put that up in the Discord. <laughs> All right. <laughs> when Elliot's mother leaves for work, uh, E.T. gets to wander the house all alone. At school, Elliot is being described to how he's going to have to dissect a frog. We keep cutting back and forth between the frog dissection at school and E.T. wandering around the house. Uh, where he has found beer. I hope he's of age. It's really lucky that whatever species E.T. is can metabolize candy, sugar, chocolate, and alcohol. Because not even all mammals can do that. Or maybe that's why he, he does end up with failing health towards the end, before, you know, Halloween. 
Yeah, that could be. I was thinking about that. <laughs> so as E.T. is drinking alcohol, we cut back to Elliot burping, which is kind of our first thing that, like, maybe they're connected and something weird is happening. Elliot also kind of looks over at the girl next to him who apparently found his burping very attractive by the looks she starts giving him. Well, that's what people are into sometimes, you know. I'm sure some somewhere on the internet. The more E.T. drinks, the stranger Elliot starts acting. Uh, E.T. starts playing with a speak and spell, which will become important later in the movie, because for some reason, speak and spells just are really important in this time period of movie making. He turns on the TV, and in class, apparently, they have to kill the frogs themselves. I didn't know this was a thing in old science classes. Apparently it used to be. I mean, by the time I was in middle school and we did the animal dissections, they were preserved. They were they were preserved in formaldehyde Same and here. purchased from a, a scientific supply company. But I mean, I'm pretty sure that there's no, they don't even do like dead dissections. I'm pretty sure it's all done by software now. Yeah, I think that I think they just have simulations. I even saw this like thing that was just made of like plastic, like really realistic plastic and organs and things that they're using in some schools. That's good because I tell you what, it was only the unit only lasted a month tops, but the sm- it put me off the smell of formaldehyde. It's, it's just the worst smell. It was a horrible smell, and the thing is that they had been killed so long ago and just preserved that all the tissue was basically the same green gray uniform color it was horrible i i i I mean i'm not a squeamish person but i totally endorse doing it by software or by model it's just better for everyone apparently the way that they have to kill the frogs is by putting them in jars with a cotton ball filled with chloroform and then they close the jars while they're waiting for the frogs to slowly suffocate elliot starts talking to his we cut to E.T. who's found a newspaper with a comic where an astronaut makes a distress beacon. Um, I, I guess he can read now. Still a little unclear what's going on with that. Well, there was no, there were no actual um, there was no actual words in that comic, and I I was I was actually thinking about that when I was watching it today because I'm putting together a lecture on language acquisition for a, a, I'm giving a lecture for one of my supervisor's classes uh, next month. And that's very, it is very elegant simplicity. The fact that when they communicate with ET before he starts learning English words, it all is in gestures and in social modeling and comparison. And the fact that he's looked at what's basically pictograms and discerned their meaning. That's, I thought that was pretty cool. There are help, help written in the last line of the things. When I, when I watched it again, it was a little more clear in the image that it's a that it's a radio dish which i guess most spacefaring species would have had to come up with something similar to a radar dish and so it's et's like well i now have a way to sort of communicate sort of what i need to be doing here i guess because i got a little uh, picture i can show off now after et reads the newspaper elliot stares directly into the camera and starts saying save him and then dumps frogs everywhere Mm mm-hmm so there's pandemonium in the classroom. Frogs are going everywhere. I, I guess Elliot starts mirroring what E.T. is watching on television, which is some sort of weird romantic-y movie, and he, like, grabs the girl from earlier and pulls her in for a kiss, including her having to, like, or him having to, like, stand on another child's back to reach the same eye level. 
I think this is perhaps the silliest scene of the movie, but uh, yes. It was weird and kind of nonsensical, yeah. We just cut away from this nonsense, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) You just cut away from it. Elliot gets home and sees that his sister is dressed up E.T. in a wig and hat. And also taught him English. I don't know. I thought E.T. looked good in the hat. Yeah, me too. I just thought, what Spanish. have you done to him? Yeah, Elliot freaks out because his sister is not ascribing to the arbitrary gender norms that he assigned this naked, genderless alien. I like that because because when you know Michael says he's a boy or a girl, he, he answers with certainty, oh, he's a boy. But like... Yeah, it's just like, oh, it's a boy. I just loved that Like I was reading the interview thing and like, canonically like according to the script and and spielberg like et is definitely genderless is it isn't he also like technically a plant it says genderless like a plant so i'm unclear if that means it's a plant-like species or they can just well maybe they have like some kind of different way of reproducing yeah they reproduce with spores like orcs in warhammer i don't know (laughs) they also are introduced to the large pile of random junk that et has brought upstairs which will become important later. This is where Elliot finally names him E.T., and E.T. runs off yelling his own name. He's excited. He's been named. Yes. Being able to talk, he also now communicates the only thing anyone remembers from this movie, which is the desire to phone home. That is. It is like the only thing that people remember about Yeah. E.T., glowy finger, phoning home. Although apparently the actress who voiced E.T. smoked in excess of two packs of cigarettes a day. And that's why her, her voice was like that. It's an interesting voice choice. I'm glad that they, like, it's it's a little bit sad for the voice actor, I guess. But, I mean, it did give a very distinctive sound. Hopefully Indeed. she is. But Pat Welsh, let's see what he has to say. She died in 1995. Oh. Of pneumonia. Elliot and Michael are collecting random things from the garage that I guess they need to use to build E.T.'s space phone. Uh, Men from before have a listening van for some reason. They overhear Michael and Elliot talking about their dad who they miss and smelling his shirt in a kind of interesting and slightly a weird scene but okay i guess they missed their dad that's fine (laughs) michael points out that et doesn't look so good and elliot gets really mad and says that they're fine this is also when michael points out that elliot has started using plural pronouns when referring to either himself or et curious when bringing back materials to et elliot cuts himself we get the glowy finger scene which is the other thing everyone remembers where he heals is cut and we discover that E.T. has magical healing powers. Force heal, activate! E.T. uses telekinesis to build his little machine out of random stuff and they hatch a plan to sneak E.T. out into the woods. They dress him in a ghost costume and pretend that E.T. is their sister. After a bit of comedy where their mom refuses to notice that her daughter is actually a small alien, uh, they go outside I love that. She's just like, oh, you guys look great. Okay, bye. <laughs> it's just a very distracted business mom. Although, you know, I, I really do I really do feel for the mom, you know, in, in my rewatching, because you see how sexy she was dressed on Halloween. She's not going out. She's not going to a party. You know, she's just giving out candy, you know, to, to the neighborhood kids. But even though I think it's kind of implied that the husband left her for the, for another woman, 
like, you know, she's, she's still, you know, she's still like, you know what, I'm going to dress sexy because that's how I feel. And I was like, go on, go on, yeah. Elliot. Good job. Dress yeah, sexy if you want to. Just be yourself. 80s female empowerment. They sneak E.T. past a bunch of kids. They put him on Elliot's bicycle. And it's nighttime now for some reason. Like, they start in the daytime and the sun goes down really fast in this movie. Well, I mean, it is late October. So you are about a, about a three weeks away from daylight savings time in the States. So I can see it. That is true. I don't remember... Like I've I've lived on the on kind of the Midwest and the East Coast, and I don't remember the sun going down this fast when I lived in the western lower western half of the country. This is something that I associate more with the Northeast. Is that like all of a sudden it's dark now? Fair enough. <laughs> sun be gone. So Elliot is riding through the woods with E.T. in his bike basket. He decides that he has to stop because the road is too bumpy to keep going, and then E.T telekinetically drags the bike off a cliff. He's like, well, we're, we're going. We don't need roads. One of the greatest moments in cinema. Yep, they fly. They go in front of the moon. And this is your logo and trailer shot and, you know, everything. John Williams is a national treasure. Correct. And we don't deserve him. That is true. The music was probably one of the best parts of this movie. He won a... He, I, I'm sure... I, I know he won a Grammy for this, and I'm pretty sure he won a... He won an Academy Award as well. I think he so. He also won our hearts. He did win our hearts. Oh. They set up E.T.'s communicator, which is apparently powered by tying it to a tree branch that blows around. They say that it's working as intended, though. Uh, Elliot falls asleep because they've been out too late and wakes up the next morning with E.T. gone. At the house, his mother is worried and is telling a police officer about how Elliot is missing when he suddenly appears snuck into the house because she all of a sudden just closes the refrigerator door and boom, kid. That was great. And I like that um, you never actually see the cop. They see, like, kind of off to the side of the cop. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. I just thought that was, it was kind of interesting because she's talking to him. She's like, okay, thanks, officer. No, that's grand, sure. But just another kind of thing where, like, the authorities are kind of faceless. The mom's important, this random cop person? Not really. And even the, and even the teacher, you don't really see it. That's true. You never see the teacher. Elliot tells his brother that E.T. is missing and sends him out to find him, which Michael does because E.T. is lying mostly dead in a creek next to a raccoon. Oh my god, that is the most traumatic scene from this movie. Like him, like all like gray and almost dead, just traumatized like little teeny me. Cause I, I think I was about four when I first saw E.T. Yeah, sort of like, holy crap, our, our buddy, is, he's dying. We gotta do something. <laughs> raccoon, um, help. And then Raccoon's just like, I I wasn't just, he was like that when I got here. I don't know what to tell you. They bring E.T. home and decide that this is a good point to show their mother that they have an alien. Because okay, they're kind of at the point where they're, they don't, they're not able to handle this anymore. So yeah. That's true. Good decision making, children. Again, that is, that is a very poignant part of it because there is always that tipping point where, oh my God, I don't know what to do. I've got to talk to mom or dad. They'll know mm-hmm. what to do. And then just the, the look. She doesn't drop the coffee cup. She just kind of loses her hold on it and the coffee spills out. And just like that's, I don't know, that scene was brilliantly acted. It was. And then she gets scared, grabs the kids, goes downstairs. Before anybody can figure out what to do, astronauts show up and attack the house. Surprise, spacemen of a different sort. Full on astronauts in like full NASA space gear. 
with the helmet and the NASA patch and everything. Don't worry, family. Everything is normal. I'm sorry, like, kids movie, but why astronauts? This is maybe a matter of, you know, we need something that's human, but also feels more alien than the alien. And so you have uh, the spacesuit and the, the, the faceplate down, so you can't actually see the person's face inside. Yeah, I just, like, I was expecting hazmat suits. So when they show up in full NASA space gear, it's just jarring. Well, they have hazmat suits after that. So what I was figuring is that basically they're still scrambling to cre- to get together the resources to create that that kind of like mobile containment unit. So the mm-hmm. first people that they were able to send in, like, what do we have? Spacesuits. All right, fine, fair enough. It'll do for now. Just go, just go. Contain the area, and then we'll wait till backup gets here. Another thing that I liked is that the government doesn't seem to be going for that much secrecy. So this this is not an X file situation because you you've got at least what like. 50, 60 people yep. <laughs> running around a cul-de-sac and you're not going to, you know, shut them all up or trank them all. Well, the government puts the house in a big plastic tent with a big plastic tube to quarantine the whole thing. What is this, some sort of tube? But how many times have you used that joke on this show? <laughs> not enough! <laughs> they set up a makeshift med bay. They find that Elliot and E.T. are sharing brain waves. also that E.T. has DNA, but they've got more nucleotide sequences than we do. That's got to be a really, really, really impressive feat of movie science, because sequencing DNA back in the day, you had to use that... I remember learning about this when I was in middle school. You had to use a specific procedure to, mag- to multiply the uh, the amino acids and then be able to magnify the whole entire sequence and it took weeks well this is the alien hunting government they have magic powers so obviously it just takes like a few hours at this point we get the man with the keys back to explain that he's not actually that bad he has exactly the same motivations as elliot he's really glad that elliot took care of et for as long as he did and he just really wants to help et not die Oh, that's kind of refreshing. It was it was very affecting. He's like, I prayed for this since I was ten, and I was like, oh. Yeah, I love the emotion, the like emotional turnaround you get from like secret rogue government agency is actually not that bad. Et then immediately unlinks from Elliot and dies. <laughs> it's just like how you went, and then he dies. <laughs> well, I guess we got a bleeping dead alien on our hands here. That is so sad too. I was I I actually found myself tearing up the weirdest bit. And I'm like, come on, get it together. You're an actual adult. I'm like, but he's dead. No, he's not dead. Oh, God, he's dead. The doctors spend what is supposed to be, I guess, in movie time, several hours trying to resuscitate E.T., but finally have to call it and just be like, nope, we're not bringing this one back. And uh, yeah. it's beginning where they're trying to you know, resuscitate him. There's like, you know, like a couple dozen people like all trying at once. But by the well, end, it's like, yeah, it's just like I five guys left think. over. An interesting thing that I learned about this scene is they actually got real EMTs and uh, nurses to come in for this scene and were like, just act like you're trying to save the puppet. The key man asks if Elliot would like some time alone with E.T. Elliot spends a bit of time talking to E.T.'s body, saying goodbye, and just as he's about to leave, E.T.'s chest lights up. I know, right? Apparently, the other aliens have returned, and that brought him back to life or out of hibernation or whatever. They've activated his Wi-Fi. (laughs) That's fantastic. Elliot now decides that he needs to hide this from the science people. Which, like, I get kid logic, but, you know, you just had, like, the science people were being nice. Maybe Elliot still kind of blames them for E.T.'s death, so he's, like, kind of paranoid, perhaps, at this point. 
Possibly, because I mean, yeah. he's been saying like we can't let any like I mean, he says in the beginning we can't tell anybody about him. They'll like autopsy him or lobotomize him or something. So he already came into this with kind of a, a pretty anti-authoritarian thing, and then you know the trauma that he's just endured through the past several hours, I guess, would kind of color his perception of it. Elliot and his brother uh, just somehow wind up in the government's van. We don't need an explanation as to how they're sneaking past things. With E.T. in a freezer thing in the back of the van. They drive off, still comically attached to the kind of 2B umbilical cord thing that still has two scientists in it. And this movie hits peak 80s with a BMX bike chase. Yeah, they have unnecessary dramatic music. Uh, as they're pulling out, uh, Michael turns to all of his friends who are just standing in the crowd and yells, Get the bikes and meet us at the playground! Way too much dramatic music for the situation because everything is going very slow and there doesn't appear to be any particular threat, but, you know, fine, we're in a chase scene. Yep. <laughs> they get to the park and ditch the van and get onto bikes, and now there is, like, yeah, 80s BMX bike chasing. I'm glad this was not 90s because there would have been some extreme sports riffs happening. Do you know <laughs> so. what I was thinking about is, you know, part of the chase takes place in a part of the suburb that's obviously being built. Mm -hmm. And I'm remembering how much um, the California suburbs were being built up in the, the, basically all the way through the 80s into the early 90s. And I looked it up online and apparently the the house that uh, most of the in interior scenes were filmed in was nearly burned down during one of the California wildfires in the aughts. Mm -hmm. But it was, it was managed to be saved. And I thought to myself, wow, this is California before it was built up. It's, it's just interesting... Like, coming from the perspective of someone who grew up in American suburbs, it's just, like, how much my childhood and kind of the 80s and 90s was defined by construction. Yeah, yeah. Oh. It's like, oh, they're building a new road over here, they're building new housing development here, and suddenly you have a bunch of new friends who are in school because they all moved to this new, you know, new neighborhood that just suddenly now exists. See, I grew up, um, I grew up in the Philadelphia metro suburbs in Delaware County, and that was when they were building um, I-476, the Blue Route. And it went, um, there was a, a wealthier area that had fought for 30 years to get the highway to go through the uh, the middle class area, like the middle class and the lower class areas so that they could be avoided. But yeah, most of my childhood involves, why is there all that mud on your shoes? Were you playing at a construction site? No. No. <laughs> yes. No. <laughs> why would you think such a thing? <laughs> Oh, the kids get away on their bikes until they find a police blockade where the two men have sh are threatening them with shotguns, which is the part that was edited out in the famous uh, redo. Though, interestingly, they I, I'm pretty sure they have no intention of shooting them. They're like, E.T. makes all the bikes fly to get over the blockade. And it's just like, oh, darn, now we can't shoot them if they're in the air. <laughs> That's, that is a great, because they're all just kind of, like, so gobsmacked, like, well, I didn't anticipate that. Yeah, I suppose, like, you would probably be pretty surprised by a random group of flying bicycles. Hmm, kids can fly on their bikes these days. Hmm. Wasn't expecting that. I'm just getting very cynical that I watched this scene and was like, why are they all still pedaling? <laughs> yeah, I noticed that too. <laughs> Maybe if I just keep pedaling, it'll be fine. <laughs> Yeah, it's like when you pick up a dog and they try to run in midair. It's like, I can't find anything to put my feet on. <laughs> the E.T. ship lands in the forest as the kids arrive. It's nighttime again, by the way. It's always nighttime. They yep. flew for a long time. 
Oh, they had to get to the uh, the Redwood Forest there. So, you know, you know, takes a while. I kept seeing references to this being an L.A. suburb, which is nowhere near the Redwood Forest. I'm not sure if it's ever actually mentioned in the movie that this is near L.A., but all the synopsis and everything that I read kept saying it was near L.A. So they've clearly been flying for hours. Yeah, like it, it's like clear on the other side of California, which is almost the entire length of the United States. We have a touching goodbye moment as both Elliot and E.T. want the other to stay with them, but know that they can't. E- I think it would be pretty interesting if E.T. took Elliot back as a pet. This is my pet human. I bonded with it for a little while. He's good people. Elliot cries. We get the touching, like, E.T. saying, ouch, and the I'll be right here with the light up finger. Gertie gives E.T. flowers that he takes, like, the, the flowers that were the manifestation of his life energy for the purposes of the plot. The more uh, more energetic and life you know, alive the flowers look, the better E.T. was off. So The family dog tries to get on the spaceship, but decides yes. not to. <laughs> it's like, wait a moment. This is a silly idea. That was really great. And I actually wondered if that was like an, an outtake that they left in because it was really good. The dog's like, I'm coming too. Get down, get down, get down. Oh, I meant, no, I'm not coming to. Leave that in, it's great. I'm pretty sure it's just like the dog runs up the ramp and then goes down. What I am now realizing with what I know about movie animal training, the dog is staring up at the top of the ramp for the entire scene, which means that's where the dog's trainer was. Okay. (laughs) Wherever a dog in a scene is looking is where the, the animal handler is standing because the dog's always going to keep eye contact with the animal handler. I didn't know that. So the dog tried to go up to the animal handler and then was told to go back down. No, boy, uh, to not, not so close. <laughs> now, everyone, including the key man, watches the spaceship fly away where it makes a big gay rainbow. The more you know in space. Like, I've, I'm behind on watching the new She-Ra, so like, literally the day before I had watched the finale of She-Ra on Netflix where they mm-hmm. win by defeating the horde with a massive rainbow. The power of gay compels you. Yeah, so that was what was in my head when I was watching the big alien rainbow. So E.T. is an ally of She-Ra? Neat. And that's E.T. They just, like, the aliens leave and everyone's fine with this. I, I also recall there was a, a plan for a scene after that where uh, they'd be playing Dungeons and Dragons again, but that was cut. Oh, and this time Elliot gets to play. Exactly. In fact, I think he was supposed to be the game master. Well, I know that there was a, supposed to be a sequel where the kids are kidnapped by quote-unquote evil aliens and E.T. has to come to the rescue, but it never actually panned out. That would be so weird. Yeah. <laughs> E.T., save us! Well, I think, actually, like I can quote it from the wiki, because that's where I read it. Um, Spielberg decided against pursuing it, feeling, quote, it would do nothing but rob the original of its virginity. I n- think I know what he was going for, but that sounds a little bit creepy. I mean, I understand what saying, but... Especially for a movie about the innocence of childhood. Uh, oh, but yeah. <laughs> but that's cool to see a content provider be like, no, I, I won't sell out for money. I think that it would cheapen my original efforts. So no. Not for years and years later. I don't. I, well, this would be one of the, the movies that I would be dead set against someone doing a reboot of. I could see oh, like a sequel. Like it maybe be like 30 or 40 years later, you know? But I would not want to want to reboot of this. I think I really hope they don't do a reboot of this. But considering how every other movie that ever made money in the '80s is getting an unnecessary reboot right now, you might be cursed. Yeah, nobody mm. wanted a reboot of RoboCop either. And yet here we are. So just kind of, I was just randomly watching 
the as of this recording new Lindsay Ellis video on YouTube and she had this line that really applied to the movie like an alien is never just an alien yep <laughs> yeah that's fair oh. enough so, so why do you think it's e. always a metaphor well even in that video she specifically said E.T. is a metaphor for childhood innocence oh you spoiled it <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't what the video was about that was like in the first two minutes so yeah we have childhood innocence alien which it's hard for me because like I honestly remembered this movie being better than I think it actually was and I think I'm gonna get a lot of flack for saying that but for, there was just like the entire time I was watching this was just like these edits make me feel weird. I can't exactly tell what's going on. Half of it seems nonsensical. I get that it's supposed to be kind of a kid understanding the world point of view, but it was very difficult for me to follow a lot of what was supposed to be happening. Well, I think that's one of the things that, like, you know, when you, you have this, this memory of something, like, I always had this really great nostalgia memory of this cartoon that I had on VHS that we, we taped off of it when it was, you know, run on some channel and it was called the Smurfs and the Magic Flute. And I, I managed to find it on, I think it was on YouTube or on, I torrented it in, in later years. I think this was like, like in 2010 and I watched, it. I was like, wow, this is so shitty. <laughs> oh my God. Why did I think this was awesome? Because it's not because it, it was, it was not entirely done by Hanna-Barbera. There their production company involved and you know they took a lot of liberties with, with Peo's work and mm -hmm. the smurfs all have this really weird digital effect not digital audio effect added to their voices but that they're pitched up very high but they also have these weird metallic chimes in the background and it was the most obnoxious thing and i was like oh my god was i an asshole as a three-year-old <laughs> because i love this movie it's horrible <laughs> made everyone else sit through it and suffer oh god and so I think it's one of those things you just look back on it, you're like, oh, I'm not five anymore. It's just interesting how much, like, things children love that are very bad when you look back and you're like, I remember liking this. Like, I distinctly remember liking this. I thought this was cool. I thought no. fart jokes were the best thing ever. Why is it not <laughs> funny anymore? Yeah, there's some, like, really weird, obscure, like, cartoons I remember watching when I, and really enjoying when I was very, very... I think one was like called Spartacus, another one, yes! Lost City of Gold. Yes, Spartacus um, was somebody to say. Lost Seven Cities of Gold or it was, it was a whole nother, it's a whole separate thing. But no, yeah. I'm with you on that because that was the very first bit of sci-fi that I was exposed to when it ran in syndication on Nickelodeon. Mm -hmm. And it's so hard to find because it's a French show. So it's yes, really hard yes. to get an NTSC version, especially, you know, in the right language. But mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, I did like see a little bit of it like years later, and like I'm not. I, I remember really enjoying this, but it's, what what it's going on in front of my face is kind of annoying. <laughs> Why was this awesome before, and now it is not? Now speaking, if we're speaking of nostalgia stuff, which I think we need to get into for something as iconically nostalgic as ET, which I I didn't quite realize since I hadn't seen ET in a while. Like this is just like stranger things like stranger things just took et and was like but what if the alien had more teeth <laughs> now uh, now to to so folks know i i've not seen stranger things so uh i'll let you run with this here guys <laughs> you basically have now <laughs> just imagine et tries to eat someone oh okay well what he does and he does have teeth but the few times you see them at least in the cgi version they're like 
quite they look like human dentures almost it's quite upsetting even the puppet has those which this was such a good puppet in the thing like i kept wondering whether they had cg enhanced this in the version i was watching but i'm pretty sure it was just the puppet and oh, I, I, I particularly like it when his head goes up. He's like, ah, <laughs> and makes that noise that like kind of like, I don't even, I can't even describe the noise he makes. <laughs> it sounds, it sounds like some kind of like like electronic thing, but not. It's I don't know. Apparently, they used like raccoon noises and some bird noises and a few things to make the ET sounds. So that's why the raccoon was hanging out in the uh, ditch there. It was actually there for the audio bit, but it kind of got caught on screen. Okay. So the thing with 80s movies that I always find kind of interesting, especially as far as nostalgia is going, is the layers just go so deep. Because children as represented in 80s movies, especially this kind, don't seem to actually be living in the 80s. They're living in the 50s with 80s stuff. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. <clears throat> the thing about the 80s is that like things go in 30-year cycles. And so I'm really excited because now in the coming, you know, the coming decade, all the 90s stuff will now be charmingly retro. Woot. And like, I want to say that it was stuff like Grease, um, stuff like a lot of the aesthetic of the 80s did imitate the 50s because that was its 30 year thing. Like I remember being little and a lot of the iconography that, you know, we were exposed to was very, was very 50s in nature. So that's that. Yeah, that, that's completely correct. That this is for me, this interesting thing of I I was born in the mid '80s, so I have basically no memory of the '80s themselves. But this kind of time period is right when America was getting into the sort of stranger danger and the satanic panic, where oh yeah, parents thought that their children were going to be kidnapped and tortured by satanists. They're being lured in by all these un unholy things like Dungeons and Dragons and aliens. And this whole idea that we keep getting in 80s and early 90s movies that kids would just be unsupervised outside for any large lengths of time is very interesting. The yes, thing sir. is that, I mean, I do remember, you know, being being told to go out and play, you know, Same. when I was a kid. Like, would you turn the television off? Put your Nintendo down and go out and play. And so, like, you know, we did, in the suburbs, we did kind of have, like, a little area that we were supposed to stick to. Like, don't cross Rose Valley Road. If you're going over someone's house that we don't know, call us first. Be back by five. Don't make us come out looking for you because you will get in trouble. You know, so, like, we were, we ran around, but we ran around, like, in a place where our parents could be pretty sure they knew where we were. <laughs> so, I mean... Like, I can understand now, like, this idea that, oh, you know, don't let your kids play outside, you know, all this other kind of stuff. But it wasn't exactly, like, people just running wild for months, you know, the way that people like to portray it now. It's very, uh, like, stick to this block, stick to the street, stick to this, you know, street and the park next to it sort of thing, uh, which is yeah. sort of what my family was uh, all about. It's like, yeah, if you're going to the park, let us know beforehand and make sure to bring a sibling so there's at least two of you there. Yeah, or stuff like if I was over someone's house, if their parent had to go somewhere, I got in real trouble. I don't remember because I was over my friend Becky's house, and mm -hmm. um, her sister was in high school. Her older sister Joanna, and the mom had to run somewhere with the the, the wee boy. I think it was one of those things where he ate something. And he was always eating something he shouldn't have, and she had to go buy Epicac at the shop. And so mm -hmm. I got in super trouble for not immediately coming home because I was unsupervised. And I was like, "But Mrs. Slosky said it was okay. Mrs. Slosky doesn't love her children." 
Oh, Jesus. <laughs> oh, God. I was also told that she didn't love her children because they had free, untempered access to a cookie jar. I was like, at Becky's house, you can just go and have a cookie if you want. And my mom's like, yeah, well, Mrs. Sloxy doesn't love her children. And I was like, oh, she doesn't? Is that, is that even possible? Oh, jeepers. I, would, I, believe, I believe that kind of stuff. Like, you're only allowed to have sugar cereal because your mom love you. Wait, what? Yeah, I think this kind of uh, segues uh, into uh, one of the things I was uh, you know curious about talking about is uh, the interaction of uh, child uh, children and uh, their trust of adults or lack thereof. You know, in, the, in your you know, your your case, there it sounds like there is a instance of the uh, of uh, one adult trying to sow the distrust in a different adult, you know, your parent versus uh, you know, the neighbor. There, it is. It is very much a kind of like a psychological control. You know, because if you have a way that you want your children to be raised, and of course they're going to interface with other children and say, hey, wait a second, they do it differently in this house. Why don't, you know, why don't we do it the way that my that my friends do it? The best thing to do is say, oh, well, they're doing it wrong. We care yeah. about you. We love you. We're doing it right. This is the right way. They're doing it wrong. And then you get so, into high school and you realize that, fuck it, everybody eats snacks. Yeah. Slosky's are a fine family. And so it sort of makes you kind of questions like, wait, are my parents full of full of crap, and then are they full of crap on other things? It kind of uh, helps sow some of that uh, rebellion and such. And that does kind of get to an interesting like view of where tribalist uh, ideas start to form, doesn't it? Though I'm getting a little, t I'm getting so tired of the word tribalist, and I want to try to find something better because people are just yelling it at each other on the internet all day. It uh, makes uh, it difficult to use as a shorthand without being an also a super loaded term. Well, you could just use use in group out group because that's in social psychology. That just describes the same concept. That is true. Yeah, though interestingly, like this gels with my view of of uh, psychology that I've been looking at more and more recently of just the systems thinking approach of of uh, group dynamics. Because it's just the same system all the way up and down. So you have the family system, which is operating in this way, and that's forming an in-group, out-group, which then moves up to the slightly larger, like, you know, expanded family system, and then into the local government system or the local social system, which goes into the government system. So the smaller system starts to mirror and affect the larger system and vice versa until you do just kind of get... You know, however you were raised in the family is how you wind up living in your society. All right. That's actually called the Ecological Systems Perspective, um, first proposed by Bonfenbrenner in 1972, because that's one of the references you end up using a lot in undergrad. And yeah, mm -hmm. the, the basically the idea that you are, your lived experiences colors your interactions with people and your primary in-group is your family. Like when, yep. you're, when you're a small child, you really don't have a lot of, a lot of opportunity for outgroup, um, for any kind of meaningful outgroup um, socialization. When that's when you would go to school, you go over to other people's houses, you make other friends. That's when you kind of start your peers start to kind of take over as the main in-group influencers in your life because you're finding out that wow, there's a whole other world out there that's different from what I grew up believing and how I grew up interfacing with the world. Oh, wow, there's a there's a whole entire branch of social psychology that just deals with stuff like that. It's really great. And uh, having an imaginary friend can only go so far in order to get that outgrip situation going. <laughs> My in-group is all imaginary. That's well, that's oh, that gets complicated depending on how much internal family dynamic you're using. True. <laughs> oh, definitely. It's just I was just I just finished the book uh, Many Minds One Self by 
by Dick Schwartz, which goes into his his uh, ideas on taking the family system dynamic and taking it one level down to understand your internal system as a kind of group of individuals all interacting. Okay. I've heard of that book, but I have to confess I've never read it. It's actually a really good introductory read that goes through a lot of the kind of multiplicity throughout history in human thinking. Of course, one of uh, you know, when you would mention this, I can't help but think of that one bit of uh, from Star Trek Next Generation. But that's that's getting off a whole different thing right now. <laughs> <laughs> I really need to do a video on how much Star Trek: The Next Generation seems to understand internal multiplicity. There's so many references. Actually, Star Trek is mentioned at least twice in that book I just talked about as mentioning multiplicity. <laughs> but back to Isaacs's original point with how all of the adults in this movie are faceless bureaucrats. A little bit. So, uh, you know, the, the mom is the most, you know, personable uh, you know, one there and the one that is really given a face until uh, near the end. Uh, and, you know, even still, she's very sort of detached and just, you know, skeptical of Elliot and things like that, especially the dinner scene near the beginning. Where you know the, the whole uh, penis breath thing comes up, um, mm -hmm. yeah, it's and like, you know yeah, the best part about that because that's a famous line. But you can tell in the actress's face because she's like Elliot, but she's laughing. She's like, "Stop yep. that!" Like, I wonder how many takes that that took. Like, I wonder how many times the actress like completely corpsed by this little kid saying something like that. Yeah, I was <laughs> I was really trying to figure out whether she's supposed to be laughing in that scene or not. You know, to a certain extent, it is sort of a you know, you know absurd insult, but when you think about it more, it's like, oh, oh, that's what it actually means. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it gets a little homophobic if you think about it. I don't, and that's one of those things that like I didn't even occur to me as a little teeny child that mm -hmm. like why would your breath smell of penis? Well, obviously you've had a penis in your mouth, and that's why. Mm -hmm. But like, I, I have to, I do have to say that I do feel a lot more more the mum as you know watching this now as an adult because when you watch it from the point of view of a kid the adults you're, you're kind of socialized to see the adults as the bad guys as your adversary the mm -hmm. people who will keep you from having fun who will always do the not the, the the immoral thing not the moral thing that you would do but like you know seeing like little bits of you know she's she's separated from her husband he's obviously left her for someone else someone who the children don't call mom but they do you know call her by her first name and you know she obviously she's a career woman and this was this was an 82 so that was the kind of thing that was kind of looked on with suspicion back in the day like oh well you know her she's a career woman you know like it, it had a lot of like value judgments applied but yeah i i do kind of, I do kind of really kind of feel a lot more than i used to yeah and just to kind of reinforce that later on I thought it was interesting and a little weird when I was watching it the first time, but uh, the sister, Gertie, also refers to her mother by her first name. She does at one point, and I looked it up on IMDb, and it is, is it an actual error, because there's also a scene that's in there where um, the woman, the, the actress, accidentally calls Gertie Drew. Ah, ah I So that. I think that it was, because the mother's first name is Mary. Mm-hmm. And that's not the name that Drew Barrymore uses for her. So I think that that probably is the actress's actual name. Oh, well. <laughs> uh, I was reading symbolism into them saying, using the first name for both the new, their new mom and their old mom. Well, I was always taught when I was like, never call an adult by their first name, which became really awkward when I entered. And my boss had to tell me, no, you can call me by my first name. And like my mother said, never to. That, that, yes, but you're you're 18 now. You're you're in a work you're in the workplace. You can't call you're me. Allowed to. <laughs> I insist you call me. 
Hagen opines from the uh, couch. <laughs> in in movie language, you get this interesting thing in the way that the movie is shot from the kid perspective, where adults are all faceless until they become important to the children's circle. Exactly. So the mom, originally the mom is the only adult you see from the waist up. And then, even then when, when the mom's around, it's sort of like she's kind of there as more of a background character still all the time until, yeah. you know, further in. Yeah, and then later, until basically the end of the movie, you never see in another another adult's face. Yeah, the only person who uh, really kind of comes up, uh, you know, the you know, other than some of the random doctors, is uh, the the key man, and mm-hmm. uh, that's mainly because he actually goes and talks to Elliot and tries to connect with him uh, emotionally. You know what made me think of it? Made me think of how all in uh, the Peanuts, all of the adults are replaced with a with a trumpet with a Harmon mute on it. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's basically the same idea of, like, from a kid's perspective, this is how the world looks. And I guess that kind of is to a certain degree. I think this is, you know, uh, you know so, you know, again, when you sort of, you know, find yourself liking the movie, uh, you know, less uh, than what you remember. Uh, and But me being, I guess, older now, I was able to sort of pick up on more of this dynamics. So I guess I think I, li- I ended up liking the movie more. Uh, because like, oh, this is why I'm sort of feeling, you know, you know, when I watched this movie and when I watched it before, I was sort of feeling like very connected to the, you know, the younger characters here is that this is kind of how I see the world a lot myself when I was that age. And so like, wow, that's kind of cool. The interesting thing on my side is I, I was trying to think back and I don't remember having any particular feelings about this movie from when I was younger. And then watching it now, I was kind of just confused by half of it and an an interesting thing that occurred to me is like this was so definitely not my childhood because i was an only child and i was growing up in a uh like time and place where people did not go outside like both because of the kind of 90s stranger danger thing but also because i lived in phoenix arizona where you do not go outside because you will die that's a good point it's a hundred a hundred thousand degrees outside yeah this was just so not my childhood experience in any way i cannot relate to these kids see i have the the exact opposite because i and i, I was saying like i said i was saying to to my wife before uh, we were recording that i had no idea it's been over 25 years since i've seen et how formative that this was for me because i remember being really little maybe about four or so and up in New York State visiting uh, my cousins. And my one cousin had just been born, and someone had given him a little E.T. plushie that I, over that weekend, grew grew so attached to that my parents had to buy one, you know, for me. And he had, like, very, like, leathery skin, and he had, like, a red patch on his chest to the point where my last – I had a a series of of eye operations when I was a little kid, and the last two, I remember having the little E.T. plushie with me. Like, and just, you know, all the stuff, like so many of the products that I had, like I had like a little ET stationary set, you know, and stuff like that. Cause I remember it, it being fairly well marketed in yeah, the early eighties. So I, I guess I'm coming at that, like the complete opposite. Oh yeah. I, I uh, I guess, you know, as I mentioned, uh, I sort of also, uh, you know, had a lot sort of, I guess, attachment uh, due to, to this was kind of my experience to a degree uh, that, uh, you know, I am a, one of six kids in my family, so I definitely have siblings. Um, you know, I'm not the eldest. I'm not the youngest. 
uh, you know, there's there's definitely moments where, like, you know, near the beginning of the movie, where you know, all the the older brother and his friends are 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 up being you know, juvenile delinquents by being geeky with their hobbies. Uh, and it's like, yeah, my brother wasn't into D and D, but he was definitely into sort of uh, like uh, you know, sort of gearhead and uh, heavy metal, uh, you know, uh, uh, fanatic. Uh, still kind of is to a degree. Uh, and so he's he would also have a bunch of friends that were older, and you know, it was, it was pretty 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 crazy. Like there's like these voices and these personalities that I have no background on, but they're all sort of talking over each other and sort of interacting there. The kid thing was interesting because it just was so like everything in this movie that was like, that seems like a nonsensical decision, but I guess kids. So, okay. And it kind of comes back to that. You know, a lot of the nonsensical uh, decisions by the kids does kind of, you know, my mind comes back to that whole trust issue because when you don't trust your mom to be, you know, handle, you know, take care of an alien responsibly because you think you're, you know, she, you know, how result in the alien being lobotomized or dissected or something like that, then uh, obviously it's like, well, we got to kind of keep this secret from mom until the absolute last moment. I guess there is that just natural like distrust between between children and parents, especially if you do have other siblings. It kind of it does get into an us first end mentality. Now, like, aside from the kids, the one thing that, that I was, like, it kept bothering me a little, and I know it's very unimportant, I guess it's just that I, like, am inter I'm very interested in both psychology and biology, so I pay a lot of attention to the aliens in movies. I kept spending the entire time trying to figure out how smart they want E.T. to be. That's, yeah, that's an interesting thought, yeah. Depending on the scene, he or, you know, E.T., not genderless alien, doesn't always act like a sentient animal. Huh. In the very first kind of communicative introduction you get, where Elliot has laid out a bunch of candy, and E.T. comes back and has not eaten the candy, but is giving the candy back, which is a very good, like, we don't speak the same language, but I understand that you were trying to create a link with me via this object. Yeah. So, like, you yes. gave it to me, and I'm giving it back to you. But then in the very next scene, E.T. is being led through the house with a line of candy, like you would expect to see in, like, this kid is trying to, you know, get a stray animal to follow them through the house. Yeah. <laughs> Seems kind of like you're, you're treating E.T. like, you know, uh, you know, a, more of a pet at this point. What's, what gives, kid? Yeah, and E.T. is doing the whole, like, timid animal thing of, like, I'm going to slowly reach around the corner and eat the candy. And it just seemed a little disparate but from one scene to the next. Well, here's the thing that, that struck me. And it's the same thing that, when, that you encounter when you talk about human intelligence. When we talk about intelligence, there's no real definition for that. Because everyone has their own different idea of what intelligence is. I mean, mm -hmm. a lot of professionals. Do you believe in, in, Spearman's, in Spearman's G, the, the, the raw potential? for um for cognitive ability do you believe in the three intelligences the five the seven which model are you using what language are you talking about it in in looking at et we have to try to think about we, do, we don't know anything about the environment that he comes from he, here it comes from we don't know anything about its context for our behavior and so i was caught myself thinking how would someone like a like a like a neanderthal an early hominid if they were you know in the california suburbs how would they respond versus how would someone like me respond if i was in an alien planet 
and I didn't know it. E.T. might not even know if Elliot and other humans, he might not consider them sentient. He might think that they're animals. <laughs> it's one of those things that, like, you know, I did catch myself thinking about it as well, but it comes back to context. What context mm-hmm. does E.T. have to consider Elliot's behavior in? And he ultimately decides that their behavior is beneficial. That's the only thing that got me was this. They, I think it's just because of the direct sort of cinematic referencing of the leading an animal around with food. After that, it gets a little more like they have the mirroring scene, which that's the other one. Like, I, it's not actually a criticism. It was just something I was thinking about while I was watching the social mirroring is E.T. is mirroring Elliot. It would have been very interesting to see Elliot mirror E.T. Does through their bond, but I don't think it's a, it's not a conscious thing. Well, I also think that, like, you know, we are coming from this from Elliot's point of view. So Elliot, I believe, does see him initially as, like, a tame animal or a wild animal that can be tame, and only as an individual with his own agency by the end of the film. I've also uh, been thinking a bit uh, about... You know, so, you know, things from like, how does E.T. work sort of in, in, internally? He might not necessarily be an intelligence that we kind of conceive of in a normal sort of you know, fashion. Uh, I've seen uh, some suggestions that maybe the his species are like sort of like a hive mind. And so, you know, he's each individual unit you know, and, and person in it is, you know, normally intelligent, uh, but, you know, doesn't necessarily have all the uh, practice, the skills, whatever, for a full interaction that the whole group would be able to handle, uh, you know, when they're together. Oh, that's um, a good point, and, yeah. And so once he's sort of isolated like this, like, well, I know how to, like, solve quantum mechanics question, uh, problems here, but this whole interacting with the person, I, what? The interesting thing on that is that it's actually kind of just offhandedly referenced in the movie. At one point, Elliot's brother says, how do you know he's smart? Maybe you got a worker bee or something. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And especially with the kind of empathic link, the like telepathic, empathic link that is created, that's a kind of interesting side of the thing. And it's something that I do wish they ex- had a little more time in the movie to explore. Is mm-hmm. there's, there's a line near the end where his brother's trying to explain their kind of hive mind link thing. And the scientist asks, oh, so Elliot thinks E.T.'s thoughts. And Michael says, no, he feels his feelings. Which is a very, like, it's not done as much as in sort of the hive mind sort of sense. You always have this implication that it is a, a like, everyone's kind of sharing the same brain. But it makes a lot more sense if it's some sort of more slightly empathic thing. Like in a more emotional connection. And uh, we, you know, we sort of see various sort of levels of that. It's like, uh, you know, the, the whole being drunk scene and the the, uh, you know, the sweeping the girl off uh, her feet sort of situation there. Uh, that these are sort of, you know, emotionally and, you know, you know, chemically sort of induced, you know, uh, states of being. But they're not like, well, I'm going to go do this now. And so I shall do that sort of conscious thoughts. Yeah. And it gets into an interesting thing. I was kind of mentioning the multiplicity angle earlier. But when thinking about it, especially kind of a hive mind thing, like I was thinking about it in the context of the Borg a little bit ago because we were my girlfriend and I review watching Next Generation. If you are thinking about the brain from a multiplicity angle where it is not 
an individual consciousness and it is actually just a system of a lot of functioning basically individuals that you know if you think about it you are not always completely aware of the thought process of what in this system are called parts like anytime you're saying well part of me wants to do this and part of me wants to do this you aren't 100 percent aware of the entire thought process going behind either of those decisions you just kind of have been presented with two options. So in that kind of context, if you had something that was a hive mind communication, it would probably be that level of communication where you have that kind of emotional thing like, oh, I know that this other individual is, you know, scared and bothered. If I want to know why I need to like go ask them because that's not being communicated directly until I check in and try to actually work through it. I just am getting their surface level reaction to what's happening. Getting spooked and dropping the milk. Hmm. Yes. Let's check out that umbrella situation. Well, it is the, the, the same kind of thing that, you know, led to, a lot of people theorize led to the evolution of empathy in humans because mm -hmm. it does facilitate communication and communication facilitates survival. The empathy thing is interesting if this other, ah, darn, you'll have to forgive me. I forget the theorist, but I was reading this thing on uh, schizophrenia and people hearing voices. And there's actually this theory that that used to be the default state of humans. Yeah, I think I knew. I think I do know the guy you're talking to. I think talking about. I think it's the guy who believes that our concept of consciousness was markedly different throughout history, and only recently has come to resemble what we call consciousness. It's it's an interesting idea. Um, I have to I have to confess though, so my supervisor, uh, he's a psychosis researcher, and I have done some work in psychosis. One of the main things about about um, especially audio hallucinations is the idea that it's a misattribution of your own internal mind. There was a really great study done a few years ago, and I I can't think of the the unit that did the research, but it was really really cool is they found that they had a lot of people who were experiencing audiovisual hallucinations hooked up to a very complex sensor web. And the people didn't realize that when they were experiencing the audio hallucinations, they were performing um, subvocal speech. They weren't speaking, but their speech, speech mechanisms and the speech center of Broca's area in the brain was lighting up. So it was on a level that was imperceivable. You wouldn't be able to sit there and see that they weren't speaking to themselves. But it was happening all, like almost on like you know the microcellular level. So there is there is there's you know some research that does suggest that that that, that could be a thing. There's also a lot of groups now. I believe the only one I'm particularly familiar with from reading is a group in the UK that I believe is called Hearing Voices. Yeah, they're a really great they're a really great organization, and they're led by service users. They're led by people who have experienced this in part to break down a lot of the stigma saying yeah you know what i've experienced these aspects of psychosis but i'm a completely normal person i'm just like you you know let's talk about it. and the the kind of angle that i started coming to this from with the the reading that i need to kind of i kind of feel like i should credit my girlfriend a little bit because she does a lot of the reading too and i got introduced to this through her interest in psychology but um the if you look at it with the in combination with the multiplicity angle the thing that you actually come to is uh quite apart from just hearing some sort of random vocal 
hallucinations, it's the same internal dialogue that anyone would have with all of your internal parts communicating. Some people can just hear it. I don't know how much I would espouse that without reading the actual paper itself. But um, I can let you know that I did a paper that actually had just been accepted for publication. So hopefully in the next several months, it'll be available on the journal's website where we had 150 people who had experienced psychosis and they had given their comments about that. Mm -hmm. And one of the most interesting finds was that people who had juvenile onset of hallucinations, that who had a very early onset or they couldn't remember a time when they didn't hear voices, thought that until they were, you know, in adolescence, that the experience of hearing voices was universal. It was just something that people didn't really ever talk about, but it was something that everybody else was experiencing. Like you will have um, people who will get what's called narration hallucinations, or sometimes people will report a voice, but it's a specific voice like their parents or a friend or a coworker. Um, it'll be interpreted as, as sometimes the voice of God or devil or angelic or demonic hosts or or something else entirely some sort of a external authority figure of some sort yeah sometimes and that does sometimes sync up with your with your own internal or external locus of control it's it's a fascinating topic of research but yeah a lot of the as far as i understand anyway since i'm not actually directly involved in any research with it it seems like a lot of the maybe this is not actually something wrong with people we're just treating it in a way that makes everyone behave like that is trying to force people to stop hearing these things and that's causing problems is a kind of new way of thinking that we're only just getting into how much that's going to affect things moving forward well i favor an evolutionary perspective um so a lot of what myself and my supervisor are looking into is something that, that i personally espouse is the idea that the brain would work kind of like a computer and you have a lot of you know how windows is doing stuff in the background and you'll only notice that windows is doing stuff when it comes into conflict with something you're doing with a, with software that you're using or user input so you have like a lot of these kind of evolutionary subroutines that had a really important survival role back in the day but now they're just you know they're just not useful and the this the idea that these subroutines can be triggered in the brain by a combination of several factors that would result in a psychotic state um, I think I said once that <clears throat> the, the psychotic state, it's like a broken leg or like a fever. There's a lot of different ways to end up with a broken leg. There's a lot of different ways to end up in the fever state. But mm-hmm. they both, you know, every broken leg is a is a, a fracture of the bone. Every fever is a fever. So it's really fascinating kind of research. I've never thought about thinking about it that way. But, you know, I, I, you, got, you, you two are the... Are, are more ex- expertise about the uh, psych- psychological end of all this stuff here. I'm the physicist on the show. Because <laughs> I, I will, I will read books about like experimental physics and be like, that's a lot of maths, but I'm sure they're right. <laughs> sometimes, um, sometimes they do get it very wrong. But <laughs> my problem is that I have so much trouble remembering researchers' names, which makes it very difficult for me to cite things offhand. But oh, uh, yeah, no, uh, I do remember reading reading something recently that kind of ha- espoused a similar sort of theory that that kind of the the different parts of the brain that would have come about at different times are still sort of in there. I kind of liken it to my favorite kind of Terry Pratchett description of humans, which is a rat rising riding a lizard into the body of a monkey. <laughs> yeah, go on. 
The thing is that it's really hard sometimes to bring evolutionary perspective into psychology because evolutionary shifts happen over such a protracted amount of time that we could be in the middle of a major shift, but human society has existed for basically about, you know, not 0.5 of a second of that entire shift. So, so yeah, a snapshot when you should be, you know, you know doing a video instead. Yeah, exactly. Anything else that we wanted to definitely cover? No, not really. Just if you've never heard, if you've never seen E.T. before, you've only heard about it and this made you curious, go on, get a copy, watch it, you know? Yeah. Especially oh, if you're a lot younger. Second that. Or if you have kids and things like that, too. Even with how I didn't enjoy it as much as I thought I would, it's such one of those kind of cultural touchstone movies that it's worth having seen the actual thing instead of just the bits that you have absorbed through the zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Like you have the cultural osmosis of, you know, this is this is the logo. This is, you know, them in front of the moon. But why? Where does that fit in? Why is that? Get all the elements, know what their context is, see how they fit together and why they are important. And also John Williams. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Always John Williams. Our hearts are for him. Well, we have been waffling on about psychology for way more than I thought we'd be able to pack into a movie about a kid taking an alien home as a pet. Though, I think it's time to wrap things up, and that means it's time for the galaxy's favorite game show! Hey everybody, welcome back to the game show portion of the show. Hope you enjoyed the uh, discussion so far, but I think it's time to count up how many points our various contestants have have accumulated and see what sort of awards they might be getting here. So our first one is the One Mind, One Purpose Award, which goes to E.T. and Elliot for getting a sympathetic link strong enough to share emotions, intoxication, and compulsion to action, and making it that much more hard to say goodbye at the end. What do they win? IT and Elliot win the new modern innovation cell phones so they can text Snapchat emojis at each other or whatever the kids do nowadays instead of getting themselves drunk in school. Hmm, I think they're going to be uh, a little bit better off in the end, despite the kids these days, you know? Ho-ho! Our second award is the First Contact Award for the key man building up enough points because he's making first contact with an alien and from another world and then scaring the crap out of it. What does he win, Gepwin? Oh, wait, no. Omega, you, have, you take this one. I think he wins a copy of Galaxy Quest so he can go home and dream about having sex with various aliens like he always Ooh. wanted. Hmm, that's some technically goodness there. Our third award is the Juvenile Delinquent Award, which goes to Mike and his buddies for smoking and playing Satan's game. You know, those RPGs known as Dungeons and Dragons. What does they win? Mike and his buddies win probably a liberal arts degree that will set them up in the indoctrination cycle for becoming evil libs in the near future. Oh, one of us, one of us. (laughs) Ha ha. Our next award is the Shut Up Wesley Award, which goes to Gertie for so much screeping that my ears kind of hurt. Sweet kid, but come on, gal. Why does she win, Omega? She wins actual Will Wheaton. Oh, well, I guess that works then. Wouldn't that just be like a weird celebrity couple, Drew Barrymore and Will Wheaton? (laughs) Now that's in my brain. Same here. Oh, dear. (laughs) 
Our final award is the Oblivious Parenting Award, which goes to Mary, the mom of the family, for catching, you know, for not really catching on to the fact that her kids are hanging out with a dude from another uh, another planet until they're basically pointing him out to her. What do they win? Mary wins the 80s Power Mom Award. She's doing it all. She has a career and she's instilling feminism to the hearts of young women all over. And you need to stop criticizing her for not noticing an alien that turned out fine. Good point. In fact, I think I'm going to change that to the Kick-Ass Parenting Award. Yeah. Well, that's all of our prizes for our contestants. I hope that they can enjoy those from back in that magical time that was the 80s before everything started going downhill. Thank you for joining us, and I hope that you had a good time on the galaxy's favorite game show! Oh, all right. This is where we usually talk about the next thing, which is going to be the first episode of Star Trek, the original series season two. But I suppose first, thank you so much, Omega Geek, for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. So where can we find you like on the on the internets and like, you know, find your Patreon and all that cool stuff? Um, You can find me on Twitter at the Omega Geek. Um, and I'm on Patreon as uh, patreon.com slash the Omega Geek. I'm also on the YouTubes um, where I have my show Psych Media, which um, is supposed to come out once or twice a month, but I'm also in grad school working on my PhD, so sometimes a bit late than usual. But if you ever wanted to examine psychology through the bite-sized lens of children's media, Psych Media has you. Yeah, I highly recommend uh, you, know, you do fantastic work, and uh, I always look forward to new episodes. Well... I'm scripting one now. I was actually working on it a week and a half ago, and then I got the and it got put aside. But there will be two episodes coming out in February. So, oh, excellent! Though by the time this actually comes out, those may have just come out because we work on a pretty hefty backlog. That's fair. (laughs) Oh, as for Isix and I, next time we will be watching a Muck Time, which is the premiere episode of the second season of Star Trek: The Original Series. It involves Spock. Yeah, this is how he has to get it on. This is kind of the one thing that a lot of people know about Vulcans, aside from them being logical. Yeah, every seven years or so, they they go through a weird phase, uh, some sort of pawn far, I hear. I've never actually seen this episode, but it has been parodied quite a bit in like Futurama and other things. It, it's basically your quintessential bad science fiction alien duel. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> but that's going to be it for that. And you can join us next week where we get back to normal by watching A Muck Time here on Watchers of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, another pointless fight to the death, but this time it's Spock's fiance's fault. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcasts, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on YouTube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. 
you may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash drisix, and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Morris Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs>